Shalom, everyone. I'm Monty Judah with Lion Lamb Ministries, and I'm joined by my son, Ephraim. And this is another edition of Question and Answers, questions that have been sent in to us for to consider of a biblical nature about our messianic faith. <clears throat> and if you'd like to be a part of a future program, all you have to do is send your question in to qa at lionlamb.net to that email address, and we'll be happy to use your questions in a future program. Ephraim, we've got several questions that have come in for us, and so let's start and see what we have. All right. Our first question comes from uh, Bruno, who is from Portugal, and he has a question about a topic that you've taught on before, particularly the jots and tittles of Moses, and he said, he asks this, I want to know if there is a unified teaching about the 15 passages or verses of Scripture where the dots occur above more one or more of the letters, and not only in the Torah, but also in the Tanakh. He lists out the 15 passages here, come from a number of books of the Bible, and so he was asking if you could perhaps elaborate on that teaching. Well, you're, you're right. The, the set, what we're talking about is the jots and tittles, the actual dots that are above um, Hebrew letters and words in the Tanakh, the Old Testament. Uh, from a Christian standpoint, we use the expression in Matthew 5 where Yeshua said, Not a jot or tittle shall pass away until all is completed or accomplished. Some translations will say, Not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter. And that is a mistranslation of what it is, jots and tittles. Jots and tittles are a very real thing in the scripture. They're scribal marks. And that's the reason why it's very important if you're going to go into the Old Testament that you go back to the Hebrew text because there are things in the Hebrew text that the translators don't know what to do with. They can't figure out how to translate it into English. You need to be aware of them. Yeshua specifically mentioned them and said even they are not going away until all is accomplished. So he can, according to Yeshua, he considers them part of the scripture that was to do. And this brother here, Bruno, has done his homework mm -hmm. and he has sent in a list of the 15 passages. He wants to know if there's a unified teaching on this subject. So let me begin to address that right off the bat. In rabbinical thinking, there is some teachings about these, but there's not what I would consider to be a single comprehensive uh, oversight teaching on all of them. And in fact, I've done a lot of research on this, and I have never seen one that is doing it. I can see some individual teachings on some different, um, certain humashes uh, will give some commentary about these things for it. Uh, in the Torah, but you'll get very little information about the other scriptures of it. Let me do just a very quick review, this, uh, just for the benefit of those of you who have never gotten into this level of study. There are certain words and locations in the scripture, particularly in the Torah, where they put a jot, an actual dot, above the letter in the actual scripture. Tittles, by the way, are what we call uh, enlarged, more small, made letters made small, or what we call stigmatized letters. They'll they'll twist a letter in a particular uh, a way. Each one of these is a teaching. 
These are scribal reminders of certain teachings to be done. But that isn't necessarily true in all cases of the jots. The scribes also use the jots for some other areas, particularly when it comes to the business of copying and and uh, from the Hebrew text to the Hebrew text, uh, you know, to, to lay it out correctly. Let me give you some examples of what I'm talking about. Um, in Genesis and verses uh, eight, chapter 18, verse 9, Genesis 33 and verse 4, Genesis 37, verse 12, <clears throat> clearly have jots above a whole word. Mm-hmm. Um, in the case of uh, chapter 18, verse 9, it's about the word for to him. And in Genesis 33, it's about the word kiss, when Esau kissed Jacob. And in the Genesis thirty-seven twelve, it's above the olive top, the name of the flock. And some say Jacob's flock or the Lord's flock. Uh, there to do it. And then in, it skips um, Exodus and Leviticus, and then you see it again in Numbers three and verse thirty-nine. And the name Aaron has jots above it. And then the final one in the Torah is Deuteronomy twenty-nine uh, twenty-eight. Uh, which is to our sons uh, in that verse. Now, in those references, it appears that scribal mocks is a special cross-reference system that the scribes are trying to get you pay attention to all these verses kind of at the same time to understand what's going on. And by the way, there is a very interesting, unique teaching that walks you through these things from Abraham all the way to the final message of Moses. There's this very interesting message that comes through it. Now, the other references that are in other books and so forth don't necessarily cover whole words, but they cover certain letters. And in those particular books, from the prophets and the Psalms, uh, my understanding is, and this is what I've learned from rabbinical sources, is they appear to be a place where the scribe is uh, put a dot there that says, with the slight adjustment of letter, this could mean this or it could mean that. Let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Um, let's see, where is that? Um, oh, here it is. In Second Samuel 19, verse 20, there is a dot above a key word, and that phrase, that just that single dot, flags your attention. That could be translated, he went out versus go down. Mm-hmm. And English translators will put go down in that description. Well, stop and think about this. There's a little bit of a difference between went out versus go down. Uh, you know, it's a kind of went out versus go down. Um, and depending on the context of it, the scribes apparently have put this dot there to flag the, the scribal teacher. You need to take that into account. You need to focus on that as opposed to the whole context of the verse. And so there are these scribal marks, scribal uh, understandings, and it's to prompt a Torah teacher to give attention to that. And uh, so basically it's part of the teaching of the scriptures. 
And so that goes back to why Yeshua, when he says, uh, think not that I've come away to do with the law and the prophets. Uh, you know, I've not come to abolish, but to fulfill, and not a jot or tittle shall pass away until all is accomplished. What he's saying is there are certain teachings that go with the scripture that those teachings will not go away. They will not even cease until all has been accomplished. And so it's a very, very, um, to me, utterly fascinating part of the Scripture, of which if you have an English Bible translated, and that's the only reference that you use to understand the Scripture, and you don't have another teacher to tell you what it says in the Hebrew, literally there are some teachings and understandings in the Hebrew Scriptures that you're never going to hear in your life. For me, when I was in my previous Christian life, I never heard any of these teachings. Not one. Um, and so I was stunned to find this stuff after getting into the Torah and studying the Torah and discovered there's a lot more to this. And so the jots and tittles are very important uh, for a full and complete understanding. Now, Bruno, I wish I could go through in great detail on it, but we'd spend a whole program <laughs> just going through these passages, talking about the nuances and the meanings and so forth for it. I do have a, a survey teaching on jots and tittles. Um, that I have done that's available through Lionel Land Materials and in particular I focus in on that cross-referencing thing that happens in the Torah that it tells a very interesting sermon that comes out of that that the scribes would teach so that's our best effort to explain the um, very sophisticated subject of jots and tittles uh, for it. Let me also say to you Bruno that some of the references you put here there's not complete agreement um, by rabbinical sources that all of these should have those scribal marks. Mm -hmm. Again, it goes back to the, the, some of these were scribal prompts right. or stuff for them to do, uh, but not necessarily um, for us to fully understand. You'll find some sources where Sage does enlarge a letter in some yeah. passages and others that there's no change. Whatsoever. But in the case of Jots, in the case of the Jots, uh, the 15 scriptures that you got listed here, there's not complete consensus mm -hmm. on the part of um, scribal authorities about these. Right. Now, if we could go back 2,000 years ago, uh, maybe we could find a scribe that could give us an overall comprehensive teaching on it. Correct. But so some of them are unified. Some of them are connected to each other. Other ones might mean, have other meanings in, in all They could scripture. be just prompts for the scribes on how they are to render a particular teaching. Right. I think a lot of us, uh, a lot of uh, teachers always, we dig into certain passages and sometimes people draw more meanings out of things than others. And so uh, whatever kind of ministers to you or encourages you in your faith, if you find something interesting, then... Right. And this is fascinating stuff. Believe me, it is very fascinating stuff. It is. It is. All right. Our next question uh, comes from Dan. He's got a couple of questions here. Uh, he starts with this. Um, he's been enjoying um, the teachings, particularly the uh, teaching, Why Do You Believe Yeshua is the Messiah? He's rethought a lot of his ideas and customs that he had learned in the church, and uh, he's eager to continue to learn. He had a thought that he had heard, and he sort of, out of uh, repetition, repeated a prayer of protection that goes something along the lines of, Lord, please surround us with a hedge of protection sealed by the blood of the Lamb. He had a thought and was wondering if phrases like this are carryovers of, from the church that 
um, perhaps has been added to the scripture and aren't necessarily scriptural based. His main question is this. A phrase like, seal us in your blood, is that an appropriate phrase that comes from scripture or is that kind of church vocabulary that we've carried with our faith um, as baggage and is not necessarily scriptural based? Well, the, the, uh, this is an interesting question. Um, let me give you the short answer. The short answer is that the phrases that were being mentioned there are definitely Christian-based. Mm-hmm. You're not going to find that language uh, coming from uh, Jewish sources. Um, but th- at the same time, that doesn't necessarily mean it's inappropriate or wrong. Um, but if you're looking for authentication uh, coming out of the scripture, you're not going to find it there. Um, when we pray, we're told that the Holy Spirit assists us. And if a person is praying and he, by the aid of the Holy Spirit, wants to make a particular uh, solicitation of God uh, because of the great work of redemption of God, I don't, I don't see where that's going to be a problem. Mm-hmm. If it's something extra biblical, something that the Messiah or the Father has not done, then we know the Holy Spirit's not doing that. And so then the question is, well, is this was led by the Holy Spirit or not? For the most part, I think that we in the Christian community are pretty much in agreement that these are all fine. They're just things that are moved by the Spirit, you know, certain phrases that we pray with and so forth. But at the same time, let me also say, that a lot of this is cultural and traditional that comes from uh, the church and from the New Testament period, but that doesn't necessarily mean it's wrong or bad for that matter. So I think that's the best answer I can give. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, for that, I would encourage people. It's like, what does the Holy Spirit tell you? And when, when yeah, you pray, and you know, if that you, prayer comes out in that way, if the Holy Spirit leads you to pray a particular way, fine. Mm-hmm. And somebody repeats that, okay. Yeah. You know, you repeat from somebody else that prayed by the Spirit, that's fine too. I, I think people even also unknowingly reference certain aspects of Scripture. When you say covered by the blood, what pops into my mind is atonement. And in, in, especially on the Day of Atonement, when blood was actually sprinkled on the a mercy seat, that that was covered by the blood, and there's an act of and it's a representation of atonement. Which in that particular case is really talking about reconciliation with God, Mm -hmm. uh, whereas they use the connotation here is sealed, is somehow you're like locked in and protected. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, but God says He's a protector for us. I've heard of guardian angels that have helped us with it. Um, And if somebody's citing the whole work of God for the protective uh, qualities, why it doesn't seem to be a problem. you know, depending on which group and fellowship that you're with, you'll hear particular language. If you're around Messianic Jews, you're going to hear a particular class of language, more liturgy. Mm-hmm. If you're around Pentecostals, if you're around Baptists, whatever, you're going to hear, you know, certain phrases and phraseology they want to use. And right off the bat, I wouldn't say it's wrong just because some, um, uh, typical trick Christians have used that. Right. Again, I would go back to the Holy Spirit because I've been in some communities or or fellowships before and they'll say something a certain way and immediately you get like a check in your spirit where you're like, I don't know if that was... Well, and if you do, don't don't say it. Right. And so it's like, in my mind, that is the leading of the Holy Spirit to kind of 
cause you to take pause and, and question that, and then you might go back in Scripture and be like, yeah, you're right, that, that doesn't make sense. And that's kind of the way it usually well, works. Well, a lot of the Hebrew liturgy, mm-hmm. it's actually direct quotes from Scripture. Right. And so I've never had a problem with it because I know that comes right from Scripture. And if somebody's going to say, well, I don't like that phrase, well, I guess you don't like the phrase in Scripture either. You know, right. Which it's, it's the other things, the ad lib kind of things that sometimes will bring a question. Right. Uh, Dan has a second question here, um, kind of on the same lines. He notices and, and understands that we've gotten a lot of uh, traditions and holidays from the Catholic Church, particularly Christmas and Easter, and many of those things have been carried over into Protestant Christianity. Um, and then, but then he specifically asks about the canonization of the books of the Bible, and he asks the question: Is it possible that when all of this was being done, that the Lord intervened, and that the books of the Bible that did end up being canonized truly were inspired by God? And that he intervened at that time, so then we end, we actually do have the right books in the Bible, as opposed to other ones that perhaps didn't make it into the canon. Uh, what would you say about that as far as how we ended up with that canon? And if the Lord really truly did intervene at that time, even though it's handed down through the Catholic Church, if it is the, the correct books? Yeah, well, let's not blame all of the Catholic Church. I'm, I'm, I'll explain here in just a moment. Um, <laughs> We know, and because Paul has said this to us, he said that the scripture is given to us by inspiration. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's holy men moved by the Spirit of God have have written these things for us as instruction and and, uh, the information that's given to us. Let me just make a blanket statement. The basic (laughs) Bible that we have today... The full is full of veracity. There are many truths in it. You would do well to study it, come to terms with it, be knowledgeable of the things that are in there. Um, and we are told that there's a power of God that works through His Word that is able to perfect us, train us, teach us, lead us, guide us, you know, all of those things. And when I say that the Bible and the veracity of the Bible, I believe that that is, that is God's able to use that and accomplish that with us. Mm-hmm. I've taken different Bible versions that different people have put out, and there's still enough veracity in there. I can go in and teach from any one of them and show you certain basic truths and principles. Right. The whole subject of inerrancy and the, the canonization, now that's a, we have to address that just for a moment. The canon, by the way, canon means church law. And essentially the canon was established by the church so that there was a clear reference set of scriptures for the church to go forward. So they would have a clear set of reference texts and not spurious texts in and out. And so they established church law. They established the canon. The Catholic Church and resulting Protestants have always followed that. And there, if, if you go back and do a study, and by the way, I don't recommend you do this, uh, if you go back and do a study on how did we get the Bible that we got, how did we get to the point of a canon you know, for it, you're going to be severely disturbed as to the shenanigans that went on in this whole process and how we actually got the manuscripts we got and so forth. There are hundreds of manuscripts in the original text. 
and the decisions that what went into the canon, what didn't go in the canon, in some cases these were political decisions. In some cases, it was the Protestants rejecting the Catholic Bible. And to tell you the truth, the Bible we have today is primarily here because of the American Bible Society. The Bible we have today mm-hmm. is primarily because of them and the decisions they made and the things they've done. Now, not too long ago, we're talking about in the 70s, this is when I was a young man and a believer, um, there were several different new versions that came out. By the way, you do know the Bible is the hottest selling book that's ever been. And Bibles, in, in, of all of the books every year, Bible, more Bibles are sold every year than any other book. And it happens every year. Well, booksellers and book printers have, have noticed this. And so everybody wants to print a Bible. Now, the King James Bible is way past its copyright setting, so you can you know, punch out a copy of the King James Bible. But then some other publishers back in the 70s and 60, late 60s, they decided, well, they want to put out a slightly different one. And the one that really got everybody's attention was the living translation. It's not even a translation. It's a paraphrase. They took the King James and they rewrote it in a, a more of a flowing English, American English way. And of, as a result, different vocabulary words were used and it was presented a little bit different. And everybody started talking about the living translation, how easy it was to read and study and have fun with it. And all of a sudden, the King James Bible got challenged. And these Bible printers got irritated because now they're infringing on their sales of Bibles. Mm-hmm. And so these different versions started coming up because everybody started printing Bibles. I mean, multiple versions. RSV, ASV, uh, NASB, you know, I mean, and the list goes on. And so they, these Bible salesmen, they started chipping away at and, and finding fault in the other different versions. To the point that in the early 1970s, Bible salesmen and different people were running around. They are arguing and chewing up different versions of the Bible so much. In fact, the the one quote I remember that was so famous was that the church in in those days had done more damage to the scripture than the devil had been able to do in the last 3,500 years. And they, a bunch of church scholars got together and said, hey, we've got to stop this. So in 1977, 300 church scholars got together in Chicago, and they decided to make a statement of faith statement, and they said that the Bible is inerrant. Now, the actual statement went something like this. In the original writer, in the original autographs, the scripture was without error. Now, and so what they're saying is the original scripture was without error. Now, that's not justifying copying errors or translation errors or anything of the But they wanted to make a statement to have a surety that the scripture is true and that we should be listening to it and paying attention to it. Well, that worked. Uh, and in fact, every church decided to take that statement and add it to their doctrine of faith. 
So if they had a statement of faith in the in in the church, the we believe in we believe in Jesus and He's the Son of God, so, <laughs> and we believe the Bible is inerrant and and so forth, and that's where we got inerrancy um, uh, from it. And so the idea that oh well, there's no possible mistakes whatsoever in Scripture, there's no copying errors, blah 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 blah. You know that that's not at all what that meant when it talked about inerrancy. And, by the way, anybody who seriously studies the Scripture and is willing to go in there, I can find the simple errors and mistakes that were made, and there's simple explanations and so forth for them. Mm -hmm. And so there's no reason for anybody to get all wound around the axle on, oh, this is a, this is a gigantic problem. Mm -hmm. There are a whole series of points that can be made about it, if you want to deal into the the literature aspect of it in great detail, mm -hmm. and and if you're a simpleton in your faith, bringing any of these points up, it sounds like you're challenging the the truth to the scripture, which is not at all what's going on, right? And which is not what it's about. So let me just say that, and this is the way I say it for me: I could care less what's in the canon. I don't follow church law. I follow the commandments of the Lord. I follow the law of Moses. And so church law does not supersede and does not tell me what to do. And I study a lot of different books and scriptures, and I have a lot of opinions uh, about various particular passages of scripture where there was maybe a miscopy or a misprint, uh, whereas other things. And I use the whole weight of the scripture to interpret and to understand and perceive what is the truth that's in it. And that's what any other reasonable person would do. Right. So, but to say it's absolute or absolutely inerrant, that would be what a simpleton would say is just not correct. Yeah. There's been a lot of people who've been saved with the words that have come out of that book with varying different translations. Exactly. And the work of the Lord can be done there, even with the book Hebrews in it. Exactly, uh, exactly. Which, which, by the way, if you if you ask me, I don't think the book of Hebrews should have been put in the canon uh, because it didn't qualify for the rules of the canon. And there are parts of the book that I seriously question mm -hmm. uh, the veracity of what they're saying or the presentation of what they're saying and the arguments that are being made. But I also have the same opinion opinion about a whole series of other books that aren't in the canon. It's just the issue is that one was put in. and But I study all kinds of books. But there's also been people who've been saved with the words in the, yeah. from the book of Hebrews as yeah, well. So and, even, uh, even so. And, and or a person's testimony, which right. isn't even the scripture. I mean, you know, the Lord knows how to accomplish his work. Mm -hmm. and, and thank goodness <laughs> that we have handed down to us uh, the weight of the scripture that we have from all the different writers and prophets and so forth, right. because it's it's absolutely incredible that here to this generation we still can read the words of Moses and recounting for us the very earliest things of mankind on the earth. Right. Excellent. All right. Our next question uh, comes from David. He asks this. In Matthew, uh, Yeshua talks of a sign that would appear in the heaven before his coming, specifically Matthew chapter 24, verse 30, where it says, At the time 
the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the nations and the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. What kind of sign are we to expect? Is it in the constellations? Particularly people talk of the constellation Virgo and Leo, a virgin clothed with the sun and the moon at her feet and twelve stars as a crown? Or is it the blood moon? Or is there some other kind of supernatural sign appearing in the sky? What would you say is really what we're looking for as far as the sign in the sky? Well, the, there's other scriptures that, that address this. And let me just summarize what they say. They talk about the brightness of his coming. And I believe the sign of the Son of Man is a very, very bright light in which another scripture refers to him as seven times brighter than the sun. And we know that the coming of the Son of Man comes on the heels of this darkness that was on the earth. And as Zechariah says, the sky will scroll back, uh, the clouds will scroll back to reveal the brightness of him coming. And so I think that the very, very bright light of his coming overshadows any other astronomical sign that people may be doing. In fact, there's even another scripture that says, as he comes through the universe, he causes the stars to fall or flee like unripe figs. And he's to shake the heavens. He's to speak. His voice will speak through the heavens. It will shake everything, uh, shake the entire earth. Um, and that's a very dramatic scene as opposed to a blood moon or you know, a solar eclipse, signs in the constellation, or comets coming by, or other kinds of things like interpretations of certain astrological signs. Um, that is far more significant in, in my estimation. And I believe that when it talks about the sign of the Son of Man, it's talking about this extremely bright light, brighter than the sun, uh, appearing, and that there's plenty of time for mankind to say, "Oh my gosh, he's coming." Mm -hmm. and to know that something awesome and extremely powerful, more powerful than the universe, is coming toward us. So there's definitely a distinction between signs and wonders that appear in the heavens before his coming right. and the sign that appears in the sky when he does Well, signs and wonders can be omens. Mm -hmm. uh, they can be um, heraldings, of, if you will. And whereas this, this particular thing, is really is something associated with the day of the Lord. It's associated with the coming of the Messiah King. Right. All right. Uh, next question on the subject of signs uh, looking forward to the return of the Messiah. Dustin has a question. Um, and he says, on the 11th of November, 2018, there was a very unique earthquake that shook the whole earth. It was too weak for any humans to really feel, um, but you can apparently look it up. And it was detected that <laughs> waves traveled uh, from the coast of France all the way to Hawaii, persisted for about 20 minutes. Um, obviously, this wasn't a major quake. Um, but he is curious if this type of phenomenon might, because the earth is capable of doing that, if this might tie into end time prophecy as far as the earth being shaken uh, before the Lord's return. The answer is yes, very much so. Because one of the key prophecies of the day of the Lord is there is a great earthquake in which the entire earth is shaken. Mm -hmm. Now before this, what the scientific community had understood was that you get an earthquake in a certain region mm -hmm. 
the Ring of Fire, which is all around the Pacific Rim. You can get one in Japan, but you wouldn't feel it in California. You'd get one in Argentina, but you didn't feel it up in, in uh, uh, or you'd feel it down Chile, but you didn't feel it up in Southern California. This quake, they were able to get the reading. It went through the entire Earth. It echoed through the entire crust of the Earth. And it just proved that's possible. That's the kind of quake that is specifically described to take place at the day of the Lord. Mm-hmm. Um, whether it be um, the the sixth seal or the seventh trump or the seventh plague, it, they all describe this great earthquake that tremble, trembles throughout the whole world. Mm-hmm. And so that data, that scientific result, is showing that is very possible. That's very providentially, it's very capable of happening. Right. Uh, Dustin also, he, he does ask, he mentions the Ring of Fire in the Pacific as well. He was curious if that could perhaps tie into the destruction of one-third of the Earth, with that being the Pacific Ocean is, is calculated to roughly one-third of the Earth, and if some sort of quake that caused the entire Ring of Fire to erupt, if that might be the means in which a third of the Earth is the the, the, the trumpet judgments, which is what we call the one-third judgments. Mm-hmm. There's a judgment on a third of the trees, a third of the waters, a third of the seas. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these, uh, the question is, are they supernatural or are they providential? The evidence right now is that every one of those are potentially providential. That we ourselves right now understand enough about the earth that we could see that kind of thing could happen. Uh, and it wouldn't be a supernatural event. It would be something that, Natural that naturally happened in the earth. That something triggered it and caused it to happen. So I hold to the position that many of those great judgments that will be on the earth in the book of Revelation tend to be providential as opposed to supernatural. That the elements of the earth right now that we see that could bring that about. I mean, if I could add one more, there's the one about the mountain that's on fires thrown in the sea. Okay? Uh, we already have uh, plenty of evidence of certain volcanic mountains that are islands that if they blow up and they have a landslide with them, the whole mountain, which is on fire, will be thrown in the sea, which will then produce a tsunami that could literally go across all of the oceans and do incredible damage to the coastlands and ships at sea and all kinds of stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's providential. That's not supernatural, but and, but it does track with what the Scripture says. Right. All right. Our next question comes from Keith. Uh, he asks this kind of a unique question. He says, is sin unique to the earth only, or does sin contaminate space as well? Are the biblical verses that justify sin is only here on earth? Well, let's use the biblical verse for the definition of sin. Sure. Sin is the transgression of the law. Now, if you are an astronaut and you leave the earth and you say you go to the moon or you go to Mars and you lie, you have sinned. It's transgression of the law. It has nothing to do with the physical location of where you're at. You can be standing on top of a ladder in sin. You can be in the bottom of a swimming pool and you can sin. Uh, it has nothing to do with the place. It has to do with is your word and deed, is it contrary to what the what the Lord has said? Right. If we could elaborate, though, the scripture does talk about, especially going back to the sin of Adam, that the ground was cursed. 
for his because sake. because we're suffering we suffer many of the judgments and the disruption of the of the cosmos because of we brought darkness into the world we brought uh, death into the world you know those are all things that disturb the creation mm-hmm. and by the way one of the scriptures that tells us is that uh, the whole creation is aching for the Messiah to return to restore all things right in the scripture God does personify the earth and the land that you know it's capable of vomiting people out from it and then there'll be a time when he remembers his covenant he will also remember the land correct would you say that's particular to the promised land, or is that almost well, to, to the in that particular well? case? In that particular case, the promised land certainly. But you see, I view Israel and the promised land as simply God's down payment on the whole worldwide kingdom that will be one day. Mm-hmm. He demonstrates how he works with things with just that small part, but the ramifications are it will be the whole world. Right. Wonderful. All right, our next question uh, comes from Saul. He asks this. Uh, I was having a thought about Yeshua's title, the Son of God, and the confusion it causes to those that wonder how Yeshua can both be God and the Son of God. However, as I read the Bible, I've also noticed that the Son seems to have two main ways that it's used. Not only does it connotate literally the male offspring of somebody, but it also is described, there's a description of the Antichrist where he is the son of perdition. Not that perdition is capable of having offspring, but it almost implies that the Antichrist is perdition. So he would ask this, if Yeshua being referred to as the Son of God, would that clearly define not only that he's the physical son offspring of God, but Yeshua himself is God, and could this clear up a lot of confusion regarding the so-called Trinity? I I uh, well, I'll do the last part here in a little bit. Let's talk about these titles because that's really what we're talking about. The term "son of God" is not trying to emphasize that we have God born of flesh. That's not what it's trying to emphasize. It's trying to emphasize a relationship and a title. Uh, the son of perdition. Uh, the title. It's not that the Antichrist, his father's name, is perdition. That, that's not what that means. It's a title. The son of man that the Lord himself used to use. Uh, it's a title. It's talking about a place, a, per, a, a person of, of this distinction. And as far as for the Trinity, clearing up for the Trinity, um, uh, first of all, I don't like the term Trinity to, to begin with. Uh, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which has been taught by the church, I think is completely misstated. I think what we should be doing is using the language that God uses for himself to describe himself, and he calls himself a unified one. The Lord is one, and that means a unified one, and the Father and the Son are one. Uh, God and the Holy Spirit are one. Uh, the scriptures state that emphatically. Um, you know, both in, in the Old Testament and Yeshua himself said those things. Why aren't we using that language? Why aren't we using that as the description of God? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think part of the reason is because theology by nature is man trying to describe God instead of letting God describe God. Mm-hmm. And I think if we would get back to just let Let's just use the the language and the expression that the Lord himself used of himself. I think that will go over a whole lot better. I've told this story um, 
before, and and it and it's to this point, and I I want to share it one more time. Uh, many years ago when I was at a conference and I was one of the speakers that had been invited there and I wasn't really well known. I had People had not really seen me that much. They had heard about me but they hadn't seen me that much. And so I'm at this conference and this is a very nice conference. They've got this cafeteria thing where you go down and get your tray and you get your lunch you know, at this conference center. So I'm in line. I'm going to get my tray. I'm going to get some lunch. And there's two men standing in front of me and one fellow says to his friend, he says, uh, you know, they have this guy, Monty Judah, uh, coming here to teach her. I'm standing right there. Mm-hmm. Obviously, they don't know who I am. They don't know how to recognize Monty Judah. I'm, I'm standing right there. And it's kind of an ironic situation, you know, that's like the fly on the wall situation, and you get to hear what people say. And this fellow then persisted to tell his friend, he said, you know, Monty... Uh, used to be in the Air Force. And without hesitation, without even thought, I just reacted. And so I said to him, I said, no, I was in the Navy, but I worked on a lot of Air Force programs. And he turned and he looked at me and he went, no, he was in the Air Force. And I said, no. I was in the Navy, but I worked on Air Force programs. And I think it finally hit the guy as to what the conversation meant. And he got all huffy, and he got up, and he walked away, left left the child line. And at that point, I wasn't expecting that at all to happen. And I, I just kind of, before the Lord, I said, well, Lord, what was all that about? And the Lord answered me. And in his still quiet voice, he said to me, he said, Monty, men do that to me all the time. What he was saying to me was, we won't listen to what the Lord says about himself. We'd rather listen to a man tell us about God, but not God tell us about God. Right. And that's that's a huge um, moment in terms of of getting yourself on the right path for spiritual maturity and spiritual instruction. Stop listening to what men have to say about something and see what God has to say about it. He's impeccable in his truth. Mm -hmm. He is accurate and correct, and he's adequate and complete. Let's just use the language God uses for himself and stop worrying about it. Right. We try to understand it when, you know, he says, I and the Father are one, but then he also causes, calls him his Father, who is greater than he, and so we struggle to keep up we, with, with that. Yeah, language. we struggle back and forth because we're trying to adapt things that we understand here uh, and lay it over the top of what God has said. Just just start with God, and the rest of this will sort yeah. itself out. I spoke on this a little bit in my teaching, the roles of Yeshua, where he has plays these many roles where, yes, right. he's a king, but he's also the prince of peace, right. but then he's also the suffering servant. So is he a servant, is he a prince, or is he a right. king? Exactly. And it's like he, he plays all these roles in our faith, and the thing that we need to, we seem to lose track. This, this was the perplexing part for the Jews about the coming of the Messiah, because Isaiah, mm-hmm. in prophesying about the Messiah, said he would be a servant. Mm-hmm. But he would be a king. Mm-hmm. He would be a prince. You know, he would be the redeemer. He would. He would be. You know, he and God would be one. And, and they couldn't quite pull it all together and and get and, their hands around it. And then he comes, and every prophecy is true. Every every statement of him was true. Correct. 
All right. Our next question uh, comes from Sandra. She asks this, nice, short, and sweet. Who are the 144,000, and what are their purpose? Um, the 144,000 are 12,000 from each of the listed tribes of Israel in Revelation chapter 7. It appears that they are sealed by God um, at the start of the Great Tribulation, in the early parts of it, uh, to do a couple of things. One is to establish the government of God on the earth, a theocracy on the earth, for the war that's taking place, the battle that's taking place at the end of the age. Uh, they are the representatives of God's government. Secondly, the other prophecies refers to them as being part of God's protection for the tribulation saints during the days of the tribulation. And that people will take comfort in taking refuge with them, the name of the Lord that's written into their forehead. And uh, so there's some very specific prophecies that talk about what they're for, what they're supposed to do. I do believe the prophecies are literal. I don't believe they're symbolic. I don't think they're talking about metaphorically of something else. It's very specific. It's very detailed. Uh, and therefore would suggest it's very literal. Um, again, um, if you're looking for additional materials on those, um, we have some teaching sets specifically on that. I think one of them is called Defining the Great Tribulation, mm -hmm. where we go through and we talk about the 144,000 in particular. Who are they? What are the other references about them? And how do they all fit? I believe, if we're the last generation, I believe we are. I believe that today there are members of the 144,000 walking around on the earth just waiting for those days to come and waiting for God's seal to be put upon them for them to do the work of that ministry. Who they are, I don't know. If anybody walks up and says, oh, yeah, I'm one of them, I doubt it. Uh, we'll, we'll see what happens. All right. Our next question comes from Jim. Kind of a fascinating question here. He's wondering if there is a proper way to dispose of a Bible that is no longer usable. Wow. Um, you know, we have customs um, for um, the disposal of Torah scrolls. Mm -hmm. We have customs for the disposal of, of a flag mm -hmm. for the national ensign. I don't know of any particular Christian custom for the disposal of a Bible, but it certainly is worthy of the honor mm -hmm. that would be done to not just discard it. Right. As to exactly what should be done with it, maybe there's somebody out there in the world who has an idea about what it should be, whether it should be buried um, or what. I don't know. I'm not familiar with what that custom would be, but I would be hesitant. Uh, in fact, I would uh, insist that whatever is done that not appear to be a desecration and not to be appear to be a defaming or devaluing of it. Something honoring. Uh, Something uh, honorable uh, uh, yeah, right. with regard to it. Yeah, I, as the question popped in my, in my head, I would almost like the, the Word of God is living, and mm -hmm. what you do with anything else that you would ever consider living is that you would bury it, put it back into the ground, plant a tree well, over it perhaps. I'll, I mean, I'll tell you what I've done with all of my old Bibles, and even the Bibles of my parents, mm -hmm. Uh, and so forth, I just hold them. Yeah. I just have a place where I keep them. Yeah. Uh, even though I don't use them, I still have my mother's Bible, I still have my wife's Bible, I have my old Bibles that I pretty much wore out, I still keep them. Where do you have those by chance? At my house. Okay. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I mean, you put them on, it can be on a bookshelf, it can be stored away, yeah. but yeah, it's yeah, like I something just, that you... I, I haven't really disposed of them, I just 
kept them. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from uh, Angela. She asks this. Uh, it's been a few years now. I've been keeping. Uh, I've stopped keeping Christmas for a number of years. However, her father uh, insists on buying gifts, especially for his grandkids. She asks this: Can I accept the gifts after these holidays? Is it okay? I'm also trying to respect him, but at the same time, I'm also trying to respect and love Yahweh more. How do I do this in a respectful way without going against my beliefs? God bless. Okay, so this is a delicate subject mm-hmm. for all messianics. We face it every year. Yeah. Let me just give you a summary level teaching. Okay. We are commanded not to participate in any idolatrous practice mm-hmm. or activity. Okay. There is no question whatsoever, because the Bible is very specific about this, the Christmas tree is an idolatrous symbol. Participating with the Christmas tree, um, climbing under the Christmas tree, looking for the blessings under the Christmas tree, singing to the Christmas tree, all those kinds of things are worshipful things, which is a form of idolatrous actions and idolatry. If you're questioning where in the world is the uh, verses that talk about that, Jeremiah chapter 10 describes an idolater going out and getting an evergreen tree and bringing it to his house and hooking boards to it so it doesn't teeter or totter um, and and decorating it to, to make it pretty. There's a whole class of idols if you do a study on the other idols and it's called Asherim. Asherim are trees of praise and those are considered to be idolatrous things. God insists you'll not have a tree near where you worship me. He does not want the competition from you glorifying how beautiful some stately looking tree is while you're supposed to be worshiping him. It's okay to admire creation and all kinds of things, but don't mix it with the adoration that goes to the Lord. In the case of Christmas and a Christmas tree, we're mixing the adoration of a tree with so-called the birth of the Messiah. That definitely qualifies as being an idolatrous act. Now, here we are, the families, and we have uh, many of our family members have grown up with this American tradition of Christmas and so forth. So let's go to the point of activity she talked about. Is gift giving an idolatrous act, and is that wrong? No. We do gift giving all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, is is climbing under the Christmas tree to get the gifts, is, is that a problem? Yeah. That would be a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, can you have sit down and have a family dinner? Yeah, of course you can. Uh, can you sit down and have a family dinner and you got to eat all kinds of stuff that's associated with the Christmas thing and meals? That wouldn't be recommended. That's eating meat sacrificed to idols uh, kind of thing. So what I say to messianics that are coming in, you can still have family time during these big holidays that you used to keep. Mm -hmm. You can still have your children have a lot of fun and so forth. But at the same time, you can also be very clear with your family, I'm not observing Christmas as I used to do before. And no, I'm not having a thing to do with that Christmas tree. And no, I'm not teaching my kids about the Santa Claus thing. Mm -hmm. And oh, by the way, if you want to do a serious Bible study on when do you think the Messiah was born, even student students of the Bible can figure out he was born in the fall, not in the winter. Right. So that's what it comes down. Yeah, it sounds like the question specific is to grandpa's sending gifts around the time of December twenty first to, to his grandkids. Which is fine. Right. 
All right. It's fine. Our next question comes from Terry. She asks this. I'm wondering if uh, various supplements, specifically uh, glucosamine and chondroitin supplements, are considered unclean. I happen to look it up. They are supplements that are that help to treat osteoarthritis. And what it is is a chain of sugars and pro that are attached to proteins that are synthesized and drawn from the exoskeletons of crustaceans. So she's curious if these particular supplements would be considered unclean. The uh, this is from a rabbinical standpoint now on this thing uh, of the question of kosher. If you take an item which is say a portion of even an unclean animal or creature and you use it in a different kind of way to do for medicinal effect, for the enhancement of health, for the aid of health, it is considered kosher. All medicines are considered kosher. First of all, they're not food, and kosher is for the determination of foods. I ingest uh, pills. I don't call them food. Uh, I ingest some that are called supplements. I actually ingest some that are chemically made to assist me with different things that are happening in my body. Uh, you know, in fact, I have a heart condition called AFib. You know, I, it gets out of sync. And so they give me a pill that helps stabilize that, you know, that helps my heart to beat consistently and correctly. Uh, I don't know exactly what's in that pill, but if it turned out there was some extract or something that was processed out of some unclean thing, it wouldn't bother me a bit. You know, I'm taking that pill for health and benefit. I want to remind you that the prevailing commandment at the end of the Torah is Moses instructs us, you shall live by these commandments. And the overarching structure of the commandments of the Lord is if it, if it promotes life, that takes priority and precedence. Medicines take priority and precedence to preserve life. Right. There are sects of Judaism, particularly some Orthodox would say it still would be unclean and they would, and so you'll find people you'll that You'll find will, diversity. Yeah. And so it's but I'm giving case. you some general definitions. Right. And that's in the same case as a heart valve that comes from swine that is used as, a, as an implant for, for some people as well. Transplant, I should say. And um, so some will say that, but I'm 100% in agreement with you that it's like, yes, these are for life. Let us remember truly what the source of the commandment and the reason for the commandments are. Well, you know, if you stop and think about it, anti-venom for a snake bite yeah. is some of the venom right. that they make the anti-venom out of. No, it was synthesized from an unclean animal. I don't want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think I guarantee if you that. get bit by the snake, you want the anti-venom. Exactly. So I, I think that's, the, that, that's probably maybe the quickest, easiest uh, way mm -hmm. to answer that question, I would say. All right, our next question, uh, he comes from Tim, and he asks this. Um, he's specifically asking about uh, this verse, Revelation chapter 13, verse 8, where it says, All who dwell on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name is not be written in the, from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb has been, uh, who has been slain. Uh, he asks, Is there a group of people living on the earth right now who cannot be redeemed? I thought Cain's lineage died out before the flood. Is that correct? Um, there are certain ones that have, have certain judgments pronounced against them, but let's set that aside for a moment. Let's talk about the Lamb's Book of Life. Mm -hmm. the, if you go through and do the complete and full study 
of this reference to the book of life and the Lamb's book of life, what you're going to discover is essentially God has written everybody's name in this book. If you're alive, your name has been written in the book. Now, the key issue is, does it stay there, remain there, or does it get blotted out? Does it get removed or blotted out where it can't be read again? And that's essentially the how we answer the question is, what was God's intent for all of us? God's intent for all of creation is that they would live. They would be part of his kingdom. But some men choose to have their name blotted out from his book. And so the final judgment will come down to whose name is in the book, whose name is not in the book. It's not your name gets written in when you decide to become a believer. Your name was already there from the beginning of the creation of the heavens and the earth. Mm-hmm. It, it almost is along the same lines when people say that like when we're born, we're born as perfect creations before the Lord, but then we're later corrupted. It's like everyone has the capacity Mm-hmm. To be we the, all start out from the from the original state of when God created man the first time, right? And but and then we depart from there. But through actions, we can. And so it's almost like are there people that cannot be redeemed? Actually, a better way I would see there will be people who will not be redeemed the, because correct. of the hardness of God. Correct. It, and and there's certain people who take actions that definitely blots their name out, and then that's they're still alive walking around, but they're they're done, right? All right, next question. A couple of uh, practical questions coming up here from Janet. She asks this, I was married and divorced. I divorced my husband. We both committed adultery. I remarried. Is this now a sin? Or should I, or do I need to divorce or live apart from my new husband? So let me give the quick answer here. No. If you're joined in union, remain in union. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, Obviously, if I could use the words of Yeshua here to the woman that was caught in the act of adultery, or I would say, go and sin no more. Mm-hmm. You know, to use his words. Right. Okay, you understand what happened, what did. Okay, let's bring that to a stop, and let's now go forward with the Lord. Let's go and sin no more. Yeah. We have to remember the, the redemption that's capable of, that comes from the Lord. And then also he talks of us being born again. And so when the fact that we, if we once lived in sin, if we once committed adultery, if we once broke a covenant before, does that then, it doesn't nullify us from making another no. covenant, repenting of our sins, and going and sinning no more. Thank goodness that the Lord's redemption is more powerful than all the sins of the world. That's right. And so, yeah, so I, I think the whole idea is go, go and sin no more, and that doesn't preclude you from forming another covenant. Right. Right. And getting to know the Lord. Right. Right. All right, our next question, he comes from Michael. He asks this, what essentially is fornication? I'm a 62-year-old man. I believe in keeping Torah by faith, obeying, uh, obeying it in love. He keeps kosher, keeps Sabbath, and the holy days he wears zitziot. His basic question is, is it wrong for two consenting adults who are not married to have sexual intercourse with one another occasionally? I find this, not, this desire natural. Uh, but he's wanting to not be married and not, and he specifically says, not be dragged down to disobey my dear Heavenly Father. Um, what could be the answer if you could enlighten me on this delicate question? Okay, so in this particular case, I'm going to say some very direct, specific things. Right. I would say the reason why it feels natural to do this is because sin is natural here. 
and it's called lust. And lust is one of the appetites of life, and it's it's natural to have the appetite to procreate. Okay, that's an appetite God gave us. But when you go too far with it, that's when it becomes sin. That's when it crosses over. Same thing with food, appetite for food. It's great to have that, but if you get into gluttony, you're into, you get into trouble. Uh, the same thing with your ego. You have to have a measure of self-esteem, but if you go too far and become egotistical, then it does harm to you and it's sin. Uh, so the whole idea, well, it seems natural that I should want to fornicate. Well, of course it does because it's lust and because you're not. But now the question is, is it beyond the limit of what is reasonable and appropriate for that appetite? The answer is yes. The scripture is very emphatic that it's called fornication. And no, you're not supposed to fornicate. Now, Paul says the following, and this is what I would offer to uh, this particular person. If you burn with passion, get married. If you have this relationship with this person and you feel this motivation to want to make love to this woman and she wants to do the same with you, get married. Mm -hmm. That's what marriage is for. It's to build the covenant for that to work properly and that to be a part of the intimate relationship. So this business, well, I don't want to get dragged down. Well, then if you don't want to get dragged down, then abstain. Right. You know, fornication is fornication. Marriage is marriage. Yeah, he, he says also here, he says he doesn't want to get married just to satisfy his desire. That's actually why I like Actually, that's get part of the reason. By the way, let me go ahead and break the code for you as a, as a counselor, as a man who's done a lot of premarital counseling. Let me go ahead and just tell you a truth. There's not a young man who doesn't get married that he doesn't do so because it's the socially acceptable way to have sex with this woman. Right. That's the reason, primary reason why men get married. And any man that tells you different is lying to you. Uh, love is, for him comes a little bit later on with commitment and steadfastness and so forth. His, his primary motivation is to procreate. Right. And God gave him that interest and that appetite to do so. Marriage is the socially acceptable way to express that. Right. The, 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 I, I happen to, you just look up the definition of fornication. It is sexual intercourse without marriage. Without marriage. Two consenting adults. If one of them is married, it becomes adultery. I mean, the, these are things that are spoken of in the, Scripture. The and consenting so adults what, has nothing to do with it. It's just this is what has happening. Yeah, we, we have to... We have to overcome our desires, and, and, yeah. and you have to make the right decision. And, and by the way, I would just say, to as a general statement of the world, yeah, well, what about the person that says, well, I don't think it's wrong. Great. Well, you think you're God, and you think you get to make the rules. Go ahead. Press on with the rest of your life. See how the rest of your life works out. There's plenty of people that operate that You're way. operating in his world, not yours. We're, we're called to a little bit of a higher standard. That's exactly right. Let's follow the rules. All right. Our next question comes from Elaine. She always has some very thought-provoking questions for us. Um, she's asking this question because she's worked in nursing homes with patients, uh, with people with dementia. And she asks this, also, uh, and this is also in regards to prisoners who no longer have a free choice. What about any people at the end of the age who might receive the mark of the beast without clear understanding, knowledge, or even that it is outside of their control to take the mark of the beast? If you look at the prophecy for the mark of the beast, there are two elements required mm -hmm. to receive condemnation. One, you have to receive the mark, and two, you have to bow down to him. 
If you are incapable of bowing down and submitting your will to it, if somebody puts a, one of these implant things into you, this mark thing into you, you have not satisfied what the prophecy talked about for judgment. There's only it's just an implant at that point is all it is. So I would remind everybody that for condemnation of this thing, it takes two. You know this idea that you're capturing the great trip and they put a mark in you. Oh my gosh, you know I've lost my salvation. No, that's not true. It requires two elements before you receive condemnation. Okay. Uh, our next question comes from Greg, and he asks this. Uh, it's a follow-up question to our last Q&A, the one where we had Eddie Chumney join us. And one of the questions that was asked was in regard to Yeshua speaking to the criminal beside him on the cross. It said, today I'll be with you in paradise. Uh, he specifically asks, what translation do, of the scripture do we use? Because he's seen two different things in various translations, particularly with the placement of the comma in that Scripture. It can be read that I'm telling you today, comma, you will be in paradise with me. So he's telling it to him that day. Or if you move the comma and say, and I'm telling you, comma, today you will be with me in paradise. It sounds as if when they die and go to paradise, it will be on the self same day. So he's asking, what's the, what is the correct translation if there is a difference, and particularly what one we might use to, uh, to well, determine that? We know that in the English language, mm -hmm. the placement of a comma can be profound. Very important. In this particular case, I don't know it's all that terribly profound, but let's examine the evidence. Mm -hmm. We know on that day that Yeshua was on the cross, the other thief was on the cross, and it obviously is the same day. So if he says, for example, today I'm saying to you, that's redundant. Mm -hmm. That's already known. Right. So that's that doesn't mean anything. But if the today is associated with you are going to be in paradise today along with me, mm -hmm. that's profound. Right. That's significant. Therefore, I favor that he was really talking about the thief and he would be in paradise later that day and not that he was simply speaking to him today right because it just doesn't it doesn't pass the smell test with me yeah. of, of that's not the way a person would talk yeah. that's not the way a person would say that Mo most bible teachers do speak to the profundity of the statement to where in the same day that, later that, in the that day he was going to die that day and he was going to be in paradise that day Yeshua was going to die that day and he was going to be in paradise that day with him right that's what is believed to it said so if you find a translation that might put the comma in a different place it's, I, all, it's a, probably one of those instances in which they're trying to make more out of it than make, it is yeah, per, perhaps. Also, um, Ted asked a question about the exact same verse, um, specifically asking about when Yeshua the Messiah specifically said that. So I, we would point Ted probably to last month's uh, Q&A. And Eddie, I think, had some wonderful things to add to that question, if I recall as well. Correct. And so I think we so can probably move past that okay. conversation. All right. Our next question uh, comes from uh, Gayton and Barb. And they ask this, um, does the Bible state where we were before we were born? And if yes, where will we be returning? Will we be returning to that same place? Okay. We are in, this question is really a question about what we call tangential theology. Mm -hmm. A tangent is something out on the far edge. You don't really see it properly, but you know there's something out there that's on the edge. There is a passage in 1 Corinthians 2 where Paul 
is specifically talking about the wisdom of God versus the wisdom of men, and he expresses that the wisdom of God includes certain understandings, certain knowledge of, that all of this that we're dealing with and the purpose of what we're doing here was before the foundations of the world. Meaning that what is being played out on the earth today was purposed long before there was an earth. Mm -hmm. And that we're part of those purposes as uh, to be a part of it, which would then say, did we already exist in some capacity, in some way, before the foundations of the world, and we're now here, and it's part of some grander scheme? And the inference of that is very much laid into it. It's uh, the, the simpler subject, you could call it predestination. And the predestining thing that the scripture will talk about, it infers there was something that was thought out and planned before the world was ever created, before there ever was a universe, mm -hmm. that involved us and God. And here we are playing this thing out. And by the way, when this whole thing is over with, there's still going to be some sort of future eternity out there that we're still going to be a part of. As to the details of it, and can I speak to it, uh, it, it more than that, the answer is no. It's out on the tangent. I don't have enough evidence. I don't see it. I just have it inferred that there is this thing that is beyond time, beyond the foundations of the world for us. Right. There's also a psalm that where David spoke of how the Lord knew us before we were informed in the womb. Correct. And so that might also tie into the subject we've talked about before where the soul of somebody that being the Pre-existed pre and simply was put into a body. Or that it was the part of God that dwells within us and as well. Then and then when we die, it's pulled out and it goes to another place. Right. I think we... Not not part of the mortal frame. Oh, I think we spoke anyway. about with Eddie as well that last exactly. uh, Q and A as well. Um, Gaten and Barb have a couple of other questions. Uh, these might be a little bit uh, short and sweet. Um, they're referring to the time of Christmas that we just got done with, um, and saying that when you go to malls, you hear Christmas songs everywhere. Does it state anywhere in the Scripture that we shouldn't even listen to some of the songs of Christmas music as they're around, or is that something that we just sort of have to deal with? In the, I think we just have day? to deal with it when we're in the community. Thank goodness we're past that yeah. so we don't have to listen to it incessantly you know before thanksgiving right. uh, i think the proper line there mm -hmm. uh, is do you participate with it and do you sing along mm -hmm. when you know we sing songs of praise because we're joining in and worship right uh, those are songs associated with that observance and that ritual, that rite, and they are religious in nature, not necessarily Christian, but they're religious in nature in that they are part of a ritual mm -hmm. part of it. Right. Um, and, you know, one of the most stunning ones is the song, Oh Christmas Tree. Yeah. I mean, literally, you're singing praise to the tree. To the tree. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, that... And then there's a whole assortment of other songs that are around on the edges. Right. But then we also have the ones that are specifically about the birth of the Messiah. That That's true. When, when our, when my, at least when my spirit hears some of those, there's, there's some of those that have... We, that's where it gets into the gray zone because we do know that the birth of Messiah was special. And then Luke chapter 2, there's a wonderful passage that tells us all about it. Yeah. Uh, there's also songs which are just about the wintertime and snow. 
And I, I love the winter. I love snow. Right. You know, let it snow, let it snow, let it snow. I love that. Yeah. You know, but it, you know, it, how much of that is part of the Christmas ritualistic right. music, and how much of it is just a happens to be a seasonal song? Right. Um, so it, you got to make a judgment call on that. Got to figure out where your spirit's at with that. Um, I think there's some of the songs I would not recommend singing. And participating with. Yeah. Another question I have. This one is also quick. Do you believe Adam and Eve made it into the kingdom? Uh, I don't know if no. I don't think they're in the kingdom yet. But I think they're part of what the future is going to be, just like Abraham or Moses or any of the others. I think that the 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 assembly is waiting for all of the final saints, Mm -hmm. and then we're all going to be in the kingdom together. Right. In fact, I fully intend on going back and looking up my father Abraham and having a long conversation with him. Yeah, there's a there's a part of in the back of my head that tells me you know Adam and Eve were the first first man and woman, first ones who they made they committed the first sin. You know, us who know better and have you know we we kind of have the cheat sheet, we have the scripture, we have all all these things right here. When we sin. It's almost like we know better. It's like they actually were the ones that got the first the, the first crack at it, and it's like it's it's well, less surprising that they sinned and made the mistake well, without it, the benefit of well. But the, but God has specifically specified what they were not to do, and they sure. did it. Sure. So they they had the knowledge yeah. of what was correct and what wasn't correct, and they chose to do that which was not correct. Yeah. And so the same I I see the same dynamic going on with us. We have the scripture on a whole bunch of things. We know what we're supposed to do, but we don't do it. And and I'm pretty sure that the sacrifice of Yeshua definitely tied back into and was able to redeem even the, the first mistake. And so, if if they don't make it, there's a lot of us who would be struggling as well to to question our place in the kingdom as well. So right. I think I'd like to think that they'd be there. Oh, I believe they will. Yeah. Uh, I might, let me add this. I just read this um, short article not too long ago. Part of the detailed DNA analysis, mm-hmm. and according to this article, because of the structure of DNA and the nature of DNA and so forth, they have now concluded scientifically that every human being originated from one man and one woman. Mm-hmm. So, see, I, 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 there are not multiple sources of the origin of man. In other words, we didn't have evolution happening in several different places. I think they also traced it back to the region of Africa as well, right. which which is the middle of the earth right. part. Right. So it's uh so yeah, it's fascinating that science is even sort of catching up to uh this yeah. this concept. Um last question that comes from Gaten and Barb and also ties directly into another question uh from Sandra specifically this how do we know that the Sabbath day that we celebrate on a weekly basis truly is the seventh day as the Lord intended it to be. Well, how do we know that the sun rises in the east each day? Well, how do we know? Because, by the way, that's the measure of another day. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the things that we have the benefit of, and I know this is strange for us to believe, but mankind before our generation has been relatively smart about living here on the earth. And, by the way, technologies have existed uh, for a long time. The ancients understood astronomical things better than the average citizen does today. Um, And it was part of the technology of their day. And 
we basically have pretty sure confidence throughout all of revealed world history that Saturday uh, has always been Saturday. That the seventh day has always been regarded as the seventh day of the week. The weekly structure of measuring of days exists. And, and it has existed for a long time. And it's existed so long that there is no evidence whatsoever to suggest anything other than what we have. Mm-hmm. So you go with the best evidence you have. There's overwhelming evidence that the Saturday that we have is the seventh day of the week that used to be, and there's no evidence contrary to it. You're talking about a concept that has existed since creation. Exactly. This isn't something that's been that was handed down at Mount Sinai. This is this it is goes all the way back. Right. And whether you're and and all I can tell you is of all of world history manifested to us, the history of man and so forth, this is the way it's worked. Mm-hmm. Um, Sandra added to the question where it says in some of the passages of Scripture regarding commandments of the Sabbath, it says that you shall work for six days and rest on the seventh. And she almost she asks, is it possible that it's all like that you just have to rest on one day of the week, or is it specific to Saturday yeah, I've, the seventh day? I've, I've heard that argument before. The problem is this: is the Sabbath day belongs to the Lord. It's the Lord's day. Mm-hmm. It's not the day you choose. It's the day that God chose. Mm-hmm. So if you want to keep the Sabbath that the Lord chose, then you're keeping the commandment of the Sabbath. If you pick your own Sabbath and want to keep it and rest on that day, fine, you can do that. Just don't take issue with the Lord's Sabbath. Mm-hmm. In fact, most people um, only work five days a week. So in effect, we have two Sabbaths for them. We have Saturday, which is the Lord's Sabbath, and they have Sunday, which is man's Sabbath. Right. Are we going to obey the Lord? We're going to obey, obey, obey the Lord and, and insist on that one or, you know, ignore the Lord and do our own. Yeah. All right. Our next question comes from Emily. It's a short and sweet, but obviously a fairly broad subject. Uh, do we still have to follow the Old Testament or do we just follow the New Testament? <laughs> <laughs> yes, we have to follow the instructions of the Lord. Uh, Paul in 2 Timothy 3.16 specifically says that all scripture mm-hmm. is profitable for us, yeah. for instruction and, and so forth. What was the scripture at the, in his day, by the way? The Old Testament? The, old, the scripture he was referring to when he wrote that to Timothy is the Tanakh, right. is the Old Testament. So the New Testament is testifying that you should follow the Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Okay, so where did we get this idea? Well, we only follow the New Testament. We don't have to follow the Old Testament. The New Testament testifies and says you're supposed to follow that for sure. Mm -hmm. So, uh, yes, the answer is yes, we're supposed to follow those instructions. Yeah, basic understanding of a messianic ministry that's kind of one of our primary tenets here at Lion and Lamb is that we teach the whole scripture. Teach the whole scripture. And and it's in our mission statement specifically about the Torah, first five books of Moses, and the commandments it, of God. Right. And and anybody advocating there's a big change in the New Testament over the Old Testament, we're here to teach you and show you that is not correct. Right. That what is happening in the New Testament is completely consistent with what was said to be in the earlier Testament. Right. All right. Next question comes from Vernon. He asks this. Uh, we listened to the podcast that recently explained that the 70 persons who went down to Egypt uh, with Jacob 
uh, that there's only 69 beings that are actually named. Um, you've shared, and we've taught for many years, that the unnamed person was Yocheved, who was a daughter of Levi, uh, and that that was the mo- mother of Moses, who also, we know, gave birth at 130 years old to Moses. Um, he asks this, how does this fit in with the 430 years being sojourners in the land of Egypt, as it's described in the book of Exodus, Moses would have been 300 years old if that took place. Could you please explain? Right. The question is, uh, when Moses and the children of Israel departed, Moses makes the statement it was 430 years to the day. Mm -hmm. Um, And the inference is it was the time in Egypt. That's the way most people take it. That's not correct. Mm -hmm. That verse is tracing back time-wise 430 years earlier to when God in Genesis 15 prophesied that his descendants would go down into Egypt and there would be a day that he would bring them back up. And basically what Moses is saying there is that God's promise was fulfilled 430 years to the day. The emphasis is God fulfilled his promise to our father Abraham. He would bring us up out of that. Ephraim, I think you've also looked at some more research on that. This was in actually in last week's Torah portion, uh, which comes from Exodus 12, verse 41, is is the verse in question where it says that the sojourning of the children of Israel in Egypt was 430 years to this to this day. It's interesting that all of our uh, modern translations all come from the Masoretic text, uh, and that's what it says there. If you go to older manuscripts, which would be the Septuagint, also the Samaritan Pentateuch, it actually says the sojourning of the children of Israel in Canaan and Egypt, Egypt. is what is in the original Which manuscripts. That then lines up. That then lines up. It's that when Abraham, Abraham was in Canaan, the land of Canaan when the prophecy was given, so it was Canaan and Egypt 430 Correct. years of the day. Many other people have studied and tried to figure out exactly how long the children of Israel were in Egypt, and other people question and wonder, and, and that number 430 is, is far too I think, long. I think the study that I've said, it's something on the order of only 230 years. They were actually in Egypt. Right. And uh, but the 430 years was from Abraham's promise and God's prophecy of the Egyptian right. uh, exile and exodus. Yeah. And so that's what Mo- Moses uh, is pointing that out, that God fulfilled his word. Correct. To Abraham. Correct. Right. Correct. However, unfortunately, that because of that verse... There's many people that have always said, well, it's been the children of Israel were in the land of Egypt 400 years. I remember the line from uh, the Ten Commandments where the the old man is stomping in the mud, and he's like, quite a dance you do there, old man. And he's like, we've been dancing it for 400 years. It's that sort of thing. It's, it's the simplistic uh, misunderstanding right. is, is carried over, and we see it manifested. And so and this is another case of, do you believe that the, there's a veracity and truth in the Scripture? If you see something that doesn't quite seem to fit, you should not be concluding and say, oh, well, see, there's a mistake. Mm-hmm. What you should be doing is getting your nose a little deeper into the book and finding out what's really being talked about because right. there could be something that you don't quite see yet that is there. Mm-hmm. And that's what I have found about several of those places. Right. That's the reason why I find the study on 70 persons went down into Egypt from the loins of Jacob, but only 69 names are mentioned. Right. There's a, that's an intriguing question. Worthy of understanding. The same thing is true when you go up to the New Testament. 
And Stephen testifies at his trial that 75 persons in total. Mm -hmm. And then you go through all of the 70, and then you add Jacob and the and the three mothers. That only comes up to 74. So who's the 75th person? Well, the answer comes back. It's the Messiah, that the Messiah was prophesied to go down with him and come up. All right. Um, that question was also asked by uh, Lucas, who sent in an email. He asked pretty much that exact same question verbatim. Lucas also sent in a series of several questions um, that are on a matter of different subjects, so we'll see if we can uh, tackle these as well. Um, so he asks this, I've always struggled many times uh, reading Scripture, trying to understand the tabernacle, spiritually, symbolically, physically, um, all of those things, um, wanting to know a little bit more about the subject. And as we go through the Torah cycle, we'll be coming through Exodus, and we'll be talking a lot about it. Um, but what would you say as far as the spiritual, symbolic understanding of the tabernacle? Well, it, if you if you take the the story of the construction of the tabernacle, there's different materials that were used, and the and the, the scripture is very emphatic about them. It's also very emphatic about the chambers and how they were built, and uh, and it's we're told that it's after the pattern of something in heaven. Mm -hmm. So whatever's being given to us, it's a it's a foretaste of what the throne of God is about up in heaven. It's a, it's a way of trying to explain that. Now, that's at the macro level, okay? At more at the micro level, you could say, hey, the gold talks about the presence of God, silver is talking about the coin of redemption, and and the precious stones are all about the saints of the kingdom. You know, I mean, you can find these metaphors and parallels all over the place. Um, and then when you look at the chambers, and, and when you talk to the priesthood, how does a person actually come to faith? A person comes to faith, it's almost like entering the tabernacle. When you first approach the tabernacle, guess who you get to meet first? A priest. And a priest is the one who does the introduction to you of the Lord. And then you decide to go forward with them. A priest is the one that makes it forward. First thing you do when you walk into the tabernacle, an altar. There's been a sacrifice made for you that will make you acceptable. Do you accept? Mm -hmm. Then there's a labor. You know, we need to clean your life up. And then we enter into the first sanctuary. There's a smell of fragrance, prayers. There's the bread, the daily bread, the provision of God. There's the light of the Holy Spirit. There's the menorah. There's a veil. Beyond it is the mercy seat, you know, of God and, and the presence of God. And his throne. Uh, and this, in the same manner that you, in your life, begin to approach to know the Lord, it's like walking through the tabernacle. It's like it gives you a pattern it shows you. Now, one of the other things that I emphasize uh, in that pattern is the following. There are certain areas in the courtyard where the, any of the sons of Israel could go, but they, they could not go into the sanctuary. Only the priest could go. And even in there, the priest could not go beyond the veil, only the high priest on the day of Yom Kippur. So what is that all about? It sounds like a lot of segregation. Mm -hmm. Well, each element is special. Each element is more and more special. And God has made special things for us. And so he's giving us the definition of all of the special things. Here's the wonderful thing about the Messiah. He's the high priest who has made the sacrifice. He's the light. He's the true bread from heaven. And by the one, he's the one who boldly 
takes you into the mercy seat. So through the Messiah, you get access to all of the special things of God because of the work of the Messiah. There's an incredible, wonderful picture there. Now, there are many other teachers who have focused on this subject. There's several in the Messianic movement, in fact. And they can give you a lot of the other things that go with it. But that's that's a very simple, shall we say, explanation of, of why... The Torah spends several chapters at the end of the book of Exodus telling you all about the creation of the tabernacle. Yeah. One of the other things, uh, another simple idea that I would add to that as well, is God desires to dwell in the camp. God desires to dwell with his people, even within his people. But in the case of the children of Israel, the camp was unclean. Their hearts weren't ready to receive it. So where was God going to dwell? So he commands them for them to create and build a clean place for his glory to dwell Correct. there. And this obviously symbolically that so many things that tie into that. And so for Lucas, we'd encourage you, just, as we're, we just began the book of Exodus, as we go through the Torah cycle, we'll go, we'll talk a lot about the tabernacle, all the meanings of all those things and, and try to draw out but, every plus, one of those parallels. Uh, I would encourage Lucas, if you really find you want to focus on this for a little bit, Believe me, there is a whole bunch of teachers on this, and they have some tremendous materials that will give you even more detail mm-hmm. than, than what we've talked about here. Yeah. Well, we still have a minute or two. We can we can uh, continue on with kind of along the same subject as well. He asked this, what's the difference in the types of sacrifices, then the purposes of the free will offering, the guilt offering, grain offering? Also, how do those all relate to the Lamb of God? Okay, sacrifice? we can't possibly answer that here right now, but Correct. we do have a teaching. Yeah. We have several teachings on that. And the Torah teachings that go through Leviticus will address some of those. Let me encourage you to get into the Torah teaching of the book of Leviticus. Mm-hmm. And let me encourage you to, we, I think I have a teaching called uh, Sacrifices or Why Sacrifices mm-hmm. that will get into the different types of sacrifices and, and what they all have to mean. So let me encourage you to go to those materials uh, for it because that is also a very large subject to try to answer right. to. So what's our final question? Um, he, he has Lucas has a series of uh, of other questions as well on a manner of, diff- of different topics. We've answered a couple of them, but I think it actually, with our time running short, would be best if we'll just uh, we'll start in our next podcast with uh, these other questions. All right. So there's some meaty stuff in there's there. There's some other meaty ones in there. All right. So, Lucas, look forward to the next podcast. There we go. All right. All right. Thank you for joining us for another edition of QAA. And let me encourage you, if you'd like to be a part of the future program, by sending your questions in. Again, all you have to do is send it by text. Uh, QA at net, And let me encourage you when you send it in, you don't have to give a lot of explanation, just get right to the point of the question. We understand the nature of why you're asking. Many people are asking the same questions you're asking. You asking the question, us answering it is also a blessing to many others who view the program. And with that, we thank you for joining with the program. Thank you, Ephraim, for your efforts. And so we say shalom to all of you. Shalom. Sure.